2: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Vale Dance Festival returns to the stage July 29th through August 9th. Conversations on Dance returns for a fifth year to bring audiences behind the curtain and closer to the festival artists they love. Our live podcast recordings have just been announced and will be running from July 30th through August 9th, totaling 10 events. Guests include Justin Peck, Sarah Mearns, Pam Tanowitz, Caroline Shaw, Lauren Lovett, and many others. I will be on maternity leave this summer. These live events will be hosted by Michael with special guest hosts throughout the festival. Tickets are on sale now and can be purchased at veildance.org slash conversations-on-dance or click the link in the description of this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the content coming from the Vale Dance Festival. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro.
0: And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today on Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Houston Ballet principal dancer and choreographer Connor Walsh, as well as composer and conductor Quinn Mason. Connor has joined us on the podcast previously to talk about his performing career, but sits down with us for the first time today to discuss choreographing for the company. Quinn's work as a composer quickly gained notice, resulting in a premiere creation for the Dallas Symphony Orchestra at the age of 21. Connor and Quinn take us through the journey of Connor's new ballet, set to Quinn's existing work, A Joyous Trilogy, including their early discussions about the ballet's concepts, how the ballet has grown since its inception, and the decision to have Quinn conduct several performances. A Joyous Trilogy premieres on June 2nd at the Wartham Theatre Center, with performances running through June 12th. Tickets can be purchased at houstonballet.org.
2: Be sure to stay tuned at the end of this interview to hear a clip of A Joyous Trilogy by Quinn Mason, played by University of Michigan School of Music, Theater and Dance in October of 2021.
0: Quinn and Connor, thank you both for joining us this morning. Um, We're really excited to talk about your new work. Um, Connor, you've been on the podcast a couple times, um, so we know about your background a little bit. But um, Quinn, we'd love to hear a little bit about how you first um, came to music and what your early musical education was like.
1: Well, um, I started pretty early, pretty early being 10 years old. Um, So I was in elementary school and... I have been listening to classical music for some years now. Classical music is something I have to discover on my own, um, found it on my own, Uh, listen to the radio a lot. I was always fascinated by the variety of different pieces. It would be like piano music and then it would be like chamber music and then something for orchestra. It just had so so much color and so much variety. And it was very fast. So I listened to the radio a lot. Um, and I listened to it so much, you know, I got to the point where I wanted to create my music. I mean, I attended my very first orchestral concert in the year 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a children's concert that the Dallas Symphony was doing. And it was Peter and the Wolf with Sting. <laughs> Um that's cool I' don't, now at the time I, I didn't know who Sting was, <laughs> and, and I still don't but I, I remember the experience of hearing the orchestra for the first time mm-hmm. all of the um uh, different you know colors and instruments portraying different characters it very much fascinating I and mean, i instantly like instantly fell in love with the orchestra and I, I still I'm still in love with the orchestra like very 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 so and um um During elementary school, I started the piano class. It was actually required uh, so but I w- was fascinated with it and I progressed fairly quickly And then a couple of years after that, started cello actually no longer played the cello and started composition around that same time.
2: And how did you decide to start composition? Um, I feel like it's so common, of course to, play instruments and but how did that creative bug get to you where you're like oh I want to see this other side of the orchestra on the other side of classical music
1: well um it I think it all occurred from when I was at a chiller lesson one day when I was like definitely younger than 12 um when Well, one of the things I would do these, uh, the the teacher would give me these etudes to practice, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure what the equivalent of that is in dance where your teacher assigns you something, you have to practice it and then recite it back to them the next time you meet, and you know, work on it. So I'm not quite sure what the dance equivalent of that, but for me, it was,
2: it's called etude. Is that what you said it's called?
1: Yeah, etudes, like little pieces yeah. to practice.
2: There's a ballet called etudes. So it's very, <laughs> that has kind of that sort of feeling to it where it's like classroom kind of work. So it's a very prevalent in ballet as well.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, it was something like it was something like that. Um, and I hate them, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> in, instead of like practicing what she gave me, um, I wrote my own and then I will bring them to work. Wow! and so one day i bought her one and you know i kind of snitched on myself i was like i wrote this could you try to play it and she did you know back then i had a very limited knowledge of music theory and how i I even drew my own staff paper that's how limited my resources were but she tried and um she actually sat down and read something i wrote one day and it was um it was a unique experience hearing something I created.
3: That's um, so cool. It, mm-hmm.
1: something, it was like a light bulb. Saying, right. you know, so I don't want to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. So Connor, uh, it's kind of a similar thing, like what Rebecca was saying. Like maybe, obviously, it's plenty common for people to be enrolled in dance classes at a young age. But like getting the choreographic bug is a different a wholly different beast like I mean Rebecca and myself I know neither one of us ever had that craving so nobody wants to see that
2: from me that's no one wants sure. to see
0: a uh, Rebecca King Ferraro <laughs> ballet I't <Is that, laughs> <No, laughs> do think so um, no but so so what point Connor did you start to want to explore choreographing yourself
4: um you know for me it's something it's kind of the opposite of Quinn you know when I started dancing I never thought of um, I didn't think of creating my own work until quite later on in life. Um, I was around New Works my whole life. You know, my mother had a school and she would create a dance school, that is. And she would create her own productions that were just incredible when I look at that, think back on them. And she still choreographs to this day some really beautiful stuff. So I've been around it my whole life. and But I didn't think about doing it myself, I think, until as I'd spent more time, maybe five, ten years in, in the company, that I realized how integral my part of a creative process was. So as a dancer, I feel like um, you really have so much input and it requires so much creativity to be a part of another person's creative process. Um, it is, you know, it's it's a really collaborative thing. And um, so I just felt like being in other creations, you know, a lot with Stanton Wells, our artistic director, but with many other choreographers that would come through the door, you know, I would see them thinking about what was possible. And that gave the space for me to think about what was possible, you know? So I'd be like, through that process of like, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here choreographing, but I'm not, you know, like, you know, I'm thinking about all the possibilities because you want to be ready. If somebody asks you, what could you do there? What could you do there? What's possible from there? You always want to be um, ready to engage, um, ready to offer something to help that process. So I think it just sort of happened organically in that way that it's like I, I am choreographing, except I'm not. You know, not that I'm. You know, I'm not part of the processes as for as where there. A lot of times, choreographers are like, "Oh, go improvise and then come back and show me your work, and I'll put that in the piece." It was less of that. It was more just in the natural collaboration of uh, regular creative processes. Um, and so, when a choreographic workshop would roll around, I would just eventually started putting my hat in the ring, and um, each time you know, at first it was terrifying. It's still kind of terrifying. Um, but each time it became less challenging and each time it became more enjoyable. Um, not just a learning experience or a growing experience for me, but each time it became something that I truly enjoyed and started to figure out how, how I could do that for myself, how I could, you know, what sort of process worked for me and, and what sort of work I was drawn to creating, you know, because that takes some time as well
2: yeah when was your first choreographic opportunity was it fairly recently or
4: you know I would that's a good question um (laughs) I think the first choreographic workshop I did was probably about 15 years ago or something okay but then there would be a couple years in between the next time I would do it and then a couple years so it wasn't until the last you know six to eight years that I started to create things more regularly Mm. and um You know, we were so busy with Houston Ballet that the opportunities to create became less frequent. So some friends and I, uh, Melody Minetti and Oliver Halkowicz fellow dancers, we started to create a project um, called Reach where we could just, it was basically our own choreographic workshop, a really safe space. And we'd ask our friends um, to, you know, help out and volunteer. We'd raise money for our educational outreach program at Houston Ballet. And that sort of became like the safest, most fun space to create. And ever since we started to do that, um, now I'll just say yes to pretty much any opportunity. I'm like, yeah, let's try it. Let's do it, you know, um, because I think the experience is so important. You know, it's you have any opportunity to work with dancers um, is something that you have to take when it comes. Mm
0: -hmm. Quinn, what were some of your first um, commissions or or chances to compose um, in a professional capacity?
1: Well, <clears throat> as you may or may not know, for for a majority, I am self-taught. I've had some teachers, um, some great composition teachers that I've worked with in school. You know, I've also had to seek out some teachers. I've worked with uh, teachers like uh, uh, the band composer David Maslanka. He's no longer with us, but he is uh, very famous in the band world. He's like the great American symphonist of the band world. I had the chance to work with him a few months before his death. He taught me the music, the, the human element of music making. So I'm indebted to him for that. I also worked with the composer, Robert Xavier Rodriguez, um, not the director of Spy Kids, even though they shared the name. <laughs> um, and he was actually, uh, he, I, I worked with him when I was 13. Um, wow. Oh, I'm not even answering your question. I'll just get through Rodriguez real quick. and then no, I'll, I love it. It's uh, great. I'll get um, so basically, um, yeah, for, for, the, for the most part, I'm self-taught. Uh, I have to work out of music theory books. But then I worked with Rodriguez when I was 13. And he gave me a solid grounding in like music theory and uh, harmony and all that. Because he was taught by the uh, famous pedagogue, Nadia Boulanger. And the way he was taught by her, it was the way he taught me. And so that really helped me progress fairly quickly and um, get to the point where I could uh, actually enter that professional realm very early. Mm -hmm. And um, about the same. My my composing career started when I was a senior in high school Uh, that year. uh, I won the uh, American composers Forum next notes, high school composition award, Mm -hmm. very long title. I hope they change that soon, (laughs) Um, but that's, it was the first year they were running it uh american composers is based out of minneapolis um it was a national comp competition i think like 270 people entered that year and uh, they chose six people and i was one of the six people so i had the chance to go up to minneapolis work with um the composer libby larson work with um professional musicians for the first time and that really gave me a taste of what it was like to be a professional composer. Hmm. year after that, I received my very first professional commission from the University of Texas at Arlington Saxophone Quartet wow. for a piece I wrote called The Anatomy of Flight. Um, and I was paid for that and it was played at this gala where the, that first alto saxophonist had been drinking a little, um, <laughs> but he actually surprised me he got through the piece. Um, it was fun. And then the the next year after that, at age twenty one, received my very first commission from the Dallas Symphony.
3: Wow!
1: And then from then I, uh, from then I, been receiving commissions pretty regularly. Then and right now I'm fulfilling at least five simultaneously. Wow! Um, That's uh,
2: awesome.
1: Got to learn what the word "no" means, but. <laughs> Yeah, not yet. Hard. Not
2: yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you um, speaking about being self-taught. I think maybe Connor would also maybe say that he kind of is self-taught in terms of choreography. I think a lot of choreographers would say that it's kind of that um, those creative juices that come from just kind of like understanding the art form and then making it your own. So I wonder for both of you, um, though, you've had these influences Quinn, um, you're talking about your teachers and then Connor, you've talked about Stanton Welsh, your artistic director, for example, just working with them so much. Um, where do you draw some of those other inspirations? How have you made your own um, voice and created your own path while you are both self-taught?
4: Um, yeah, it is interesting because, you know, if you don't go through, you know, a collegiate program in dance, you are really kind of out on your own, um, right. just learning to create through life experience. So it is I, it's something I often thought about when I started choreographing a little bit. I'd love to go back to school and, you know, actually have a process and time where all I was doing was, was thinking about that. But, um, you know, we're still so busy dancing and I only have so long to dance (laughs) that you just want to (laughs) fill your life doing that as well. Um, But I think, you know, that for me, I am just, you know, I'm still figuring it out. I'm still finding my way. And I think what I learned and I think what made it possible or made me feel confident to enter choreography is that most choreographers are still figuring it out. It's this constant journey of learning from one piece to the next, how to do it, how mm-hmm. to not just have an idea, but how to bring an idea to fruition, you know, how how to make something reality. Um, that's something that I'm, I'm s- still doing and I'm still learning in every experience. Um, every opportunity to choreograph is is really a lesson that I'm using to kind of build into the next choreographic opportunity um so you know just like dancing I feel like choreographing is you're a constant student it's a constant lesson and I think that that's something that's really appealing and so as soon as you're done you just can't wait to get to the next one because you're like you you feel like you know how to do it finally and then you finish and then you're like you start the next one and you're like I have no idea how to do this but then it's it's this addicting thing that kind of keeps drawing you in um because uh, you know, at least in the dance world, our our time with dancers is so limited. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. really structurally the way that the process works. You you need bodies and you need people to to give you their time, and so um, taking advantage of that as much as possible is is uh, integral to to learning and finding my way.
2: Yeah. Right. How about you, Quinn? Do you see kind of some parallels um, also with what Connor's saying?
1: Most of the stuff is that Connor is saying is extremely parallel about yeah. having limited time to work with dancers. You know, whenever you're a professional composer, even if you're somebody famous like Jennifer Higdon, who was a Pulitzer Prize, when you have limited time with the orchestra, mm-hmm. you know, 'Cause you know, it's just a whole bunch of other people. And it's an organization and everybody has time, limited time. And but, you know, that whole experience of um being self taught and trying to find who I was, it's still a journey that's going on. I have to say. Um, I started most of my early training with um a lot of imitative composition. So I wrote a lot of things that sounded like Mozart. A lot of mm-hmm. things that sounded like like Tchaikovsky and things like that, and some of those elements still pop up in my music today, but more so in a, in a in a personal style because I've, you know, kind of taken their tools out of their toolbox and used them to fix or build a house. And I looked at that house I built and I was like, uh, okay, uh, now I've seen how Mozart would build a house. Let me see if I what happens if I take Mozart's tools and try to build my own house. Mm-hmm. Oh, and let me com- combine that with some of John Adams' tools and let me steal some of Tchaikovsky's tools and try to build my own house. And the result is this music that I, multiple conductors, musicians, uh, even other composers, older colleagues of mine have told me that, you know, they've never heard anything like it. And it's... um. It's uh, quite an honor because, you know, it's, you know, we we all musicians all use the same 12 notes of the chromatic scale. So it's um, quite a challenge to make something very much original out of those 12 notes. And, you know, I feel like um, I'm still kind of learning how to do that. You know, it's it's a never ending journey for composers. I mean, if you even look at like uh, the style of Beethoven, how he progressed, um, you know, he started off sound like Mozart music right way back in like the the late 1700s and you know you get to the the, like the late 1820s and he's writing this immensely complicated fugal harmonically challenging music and it's really looking ahead to everything and it's uh so who knows I'm writing like you know what I'm writing right now who knows if I'll be writing like that in 30 years right I don't know (laughs) (laughs) right
0: uh Quinn have you Uh, Composed for dance or or ballet uh, before? Yes. So Um, what were those first experiences like?
1: So um, here in Dallas, I've worked with two local companies. They're both chamber ballet companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is Avant Chamber Ballet. I've done two collaborations with them. And the other one is Ballet North Texas. I've also done two collaborations with them. Uh, Both of them utilize um, live music. So I've worked with a lot of musicians in this context before. Um, for Avant Chamber Ballet, um, their artistic director, uh, Katie Pewter, I've done uh, my first ballet for her was, she basically took my second string quartet and choreographed that to music. Got a mm-hmm. great review in the paper, that always helps. <laughs> um, and so c- Katie and I collaborated again on an original ballet called the 19th Amendment. And for that, you know, I wrote music specifically for that. You know, I met with Katie, and she was like, you know, I have this idea for a ballet based on the 19th Amendment, but the concept is abstract. Like, the dancers are all going to be in white robes. And I just want you to write, this is always a great thing. She's basically told me, write whatever you want, and I'll <laughs> choreograph it. Even though she gave me a, a, a bit of a rundown about how the ballet would go, what she's envisioning. So whenever I work with a choreographer, to create something original like to spin something new um i always try to get their perspective on how what they're seeing the dance is like and then i craft the music to fit their dance in the mm-hmm. in the case of the first collaboration with katie um she crafted her dance to fit my music mm-hmm. right so sometimes it works like that i you know um in in this case with uh with connor He's crafting his dance to fit my music, mm-hmm. which I'm still very excited to see. Um, <laughs> but sometimes it works like that. And with Ballet um, North Texas, the um, same thing. Um, the uh, artistic director there crafted her dance to fit my music, and it, both both collaborations with both companies have been very, very fruitful. You know.
2: So. Yeah. So Connor, how did you first become aware of Quinn's music and decide that you wanted to look into doing a collaboration together?
4: Um, well, as any choreographer will tell you, finding music is one of the most, sometimes one of the most exhausting and time consuming experiences, because at least for me, I feel like I have to listen to everything on the face of the earth before I <laughs> yeah. you know, can make a decision. Um, and uh, I knew I wanted to um, work with something, you know, with using our orchestra, because how often does a choreographer have to work with a a big, great orchestra that we have at Houston Ballet? And I knew I wanted to work with a lot of dancers so that I wanted a larger piece of music. Um, But I also wanted something that I hadn't seen dance to. I wanted something. I was trying to find a composer that was, you know, not already kind of in our circuit or in our you know mm-hmm. because I've, I've my whole life I've loved discovering music ever since I was a kid I love that sense of discovery you know sometimes you discover something and you realize oh you're not definitely not the first person that you know <laughs> just like with Quinn like I thought like I, I had this discovery because I didn't know Quinn's music and then I look and I'm like Quinn is traveling all over the world you're like this <laughs> guy <laughs> like, you know like uh, he's so successful but you know for me that element of discovery that, and it creates a personal connection with the music, um, that I think is really unique and important, but I, you know, Quinn had done a piece with River Oaks Chamber Orchestra, which is a, a great chamber group in Houston, and I had, um, just stumbled upon his name there, and I was like, great, went to his website and was looking around, and the first piece I listened to was something, Quinn, you did for, about bridges in Dallas or something. Um, That was the first piece I listened to. It was beautiful. And then the second piece that I listened to was this piece, A Joyous Trilogy. And I just completely fell for it. It was everything I was Mm -hmm. looking for. It had, you know, it used so much of the orchestra. It was filled with texture and pace. And, um, you know, it, it changed gears a lot, which I was really looking for something that didn't stay in one place, something that motivated me to, you know, work with different dancers at different times. and um use a lot of formations and patterns and using a larger group um so I you know I was like a week away from my deadline to hand in Houston Ballet the the request of you know what music I had to do, and I was like I think this you know I think I found this piece and um then I you know looked a little further and Quinn was also from Texas and it just was like oh my gosh this is what a unique fun find um this is and I'm just so thankful that he agreed to you know allow us to use his music and um that we're here talking today. I mean, I just couldn't be more excited to be working with him.
0: Right. Taking care of your skin is an important part of your image and yet so many don't invest in healthy skin care. Meet Menagee. Made in the USA, our products are proven problem solvers and are used by many dancers as well as those who simply want to have healthy skin and look their very best, whether on stage or off. Formulated with natural botanicals and texture-improving ingredients, our professional-grade skincare and cosmetics are made to withstand hot stage lighting and yet feel and look natural on your skin. Simple to use, our Liquid Powder Shine Eliminator keeps skin 100% shine-free, minimizes the appearance of large pores, and delivers uber-moisture. Our Urban Camouflage Vegan Stick Concealers cover topical imperfections like dark under-eye circles and skin discoloration and can be used for dramatic contour application, too. Our HDPV Anti-Shine Press Powders deliver excellent natural-looking coverage to even out skin tone and keep you looking fabulous. Go to www.menskincare.com, that's men's skin with one S, and use code COD30 to receive 30% savings on all individual products. Your skin will thank you.
2: The 10th annual Lake Tahoe Dance Festival will be taking place this summer from July 27th through the 29th at venues in Tahoe City in Truckee, California for in-person audiences. This summer, the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival includes works by George Balanchine, Eric Hawkins, Constantine Becker, and more. Festival artists include Friends of the Pod, Ashley Bowder, Adrian Danching-Waring, Lloyd Knight, and Stephen Hanna. The festival begins on Wednesday, July 27th at 5 p.m. with the 10th Anniversary Gala Opening Night Celebration, where audiences will enjoy a silent auction with food and wine. The festival's main stage performances continue on July 28th at 6 p.m. in Tahoe City and on July 29th at 6 p.m. on West End Beach, Truckee, California. Tickets on sale now at Lake laktahodancefestival.org or click the link in the description of this episode.
0: Oh, is, do you have a certain kind of music that you feel particularly drawn to as a choreographer? Because they're, you know, everyone everyone has different opinions about what is danceable music. You know, I mean, Balanchine famously never choreographed to Beethoven because he felt like you needed it demanded to just be listened to. Um, hmm. But what do you personally feel as a choreographer um, makes the best music for dance?
4: You know, I I think it's all about. Um... It's getting the recipe right. Like I see some of my favorite dances are to music that I would never choreograph to myself, right? It's mm. so I'm looking, you know, I'm slowly learning about what sort of music I like to choreograph to. Um, you know, when I first started choreographing, I, I was using like kind of droney, experimental music, didn't have a lot of rhythm because I thought that's what was cool and contemporary. <laughs> and then I learned like that's a really a challenging thing for me. I'm very musically motivated. Um so I started to listen to a lot more classical music um something that drives me something that motivates me um and so that's you know that's where i'm at now that may change as you know my opinions and experiences change but as i told quinn and as i told the dancers on like day one i said I, you know what i want to do with this piece is honor the music i want to bring this music to life um rather than having music as sometimes music as a backdrop to, to a dance. No, it's I want this right. piece of music to be front and center. Um, and I want the dance to be a celebration of this piece of music rather than um, just an assistant to the dance, you know? So yeah. um, I was looking for a piece that was a driving force. And I think I found that in in a joyous trilogy. Yeah.
2: So Quinn, what was, um, so Connor got in touch with you to see about doing this piece together. How did, uh, what made you eager to take on that opportunity? And then how has the collaboration process uh, proceeded from there?
1: Well, one, my availability, because I have (laughs) so much, I think at the time Connor hit me up, I was getting ready for a tour. The tour is complete. It happened from late February to early last month. Uh, but I was getting ready for the tour. I was going, getting ready to go to all these orchestras. And um, I received this email from Connor. It was a really quite an interesting um, uh, email because, like, a lot of people, first of all, when I wrote that piece, that piece at the point was, I think, a year old. Um, I never imagined dance with it, for one. Mm. You know, I kind of, you know, I wrote it for the 50th anniversary of my mentor's orchestra in Seattle, and I conducted the premiere. In uh February of twenty twenty, right before everything shut down. Thank goodness. We got to do that. Got Um, it done, yeah. (laughs) It's quite funny. We you know this ties in the dance also on the program was Stravinsky's Rite of Spring.
2: (gasps) (gasps) Nice, which is
1: you know, big famous dance piece and also my favorite piece of all time. So more about that later. Okay. But um (laughs) uh that piece, a lot of um, you know, even when I was working with the two choreographers here in Dallas, they were like Choreo- choreographic piece, concert pieces of mine, you know, pieces I just kind of, you know, I wrote on commission and then we're done in the concert. But then they said that there, it has a danceable quality to it. There's something about the rhythmic propulsion or uh, the harmonic um, progression throughout the piece. Even the way I kind of spin the melodies is very dance-like and choreographic, you know? Um, and... Uh, I was really quite fascinated to see what Connor would do with this piece. So Connor and I, we had a phone call, if I remember correctly, and we kind of connected and we talked about, you know, his vision for the piece. And I pretty much, I put it in his hands, you know, with a a thousand percent trust. And I said, do whatever you want to do with this piece. You know, I kind of joked, you know, um, that, um, you know, we've heard of, Balanchine and Stravinsky. I'm saying soon we'll be hearing the Walsh and Mason. You know, that's right. (laughs) All right,
2: right. you heard it here first.
1: (laughs) No,
0: I, I I love that. I was I was curious to hear what exactly Connor what were what were you telling Quinn about the original concept and and Quinn how did you react since you were saying you had not seen it as a dance piece so hearing something conceptually. Related to your own work that you had not envisioned, I'm curious what you were, were feeling about that.
4: Sure, I mean for me, I, I, you know, the early concept was, or at least my early goals, were trying to understand this music as best I could. So the first thing I was was asking Quinn, you know, can you tell me about this music? Can you tell me about the process? And, um, you know, and I, really, the conversation as far as conceptually about dance was what I was hearing in the music, what I was. Mm-hmm what I was seeing, it was less about, um, you know, the concept that maybe we'll talk a little bit more about flight and about weightlessness, that that kind of came a little bit later through the process of choreographing. But um, in the early di- you know, early discussions, it's just like, what is this music? What is it to you? What were you thinking when you created it? You know, I knew I wanted to use um, a larger group. I knew I wanted to do pattern work. And, um, mm-hmm. and I was just telling them different things that I was hearing in the music. Um, and trying to see if that was in line with where he was, um, and where he was, what he was hearing and what he was thinking about creating. Um, and, you know, it was sort of a, it was a, yeah, it was a very, you know, the concept for the dance sort of happens gradually for me. You know, I haven't Mm -hmm. figured out a way to have this grand idea and then Mm -hmm. bring it to life. You know, the, the, um. I sort of am more letting things happen um, gradually and, and in front of me. So the concept happens in the conversation with Quinn and in the first day with the with the dancers um, and in conversations I had, you know, with our music director, Armano and our lead pianist, Catherine, of being like, you know, trying to understand the music structurally and dissecting it and finding themes in it um, because I do not have a music education. So I am just trying to be a sponge with all these talented musicians Um, around me and learn to understand it as best as possible to to bring it to life.
1: And, you know, it was quite like after our phone call, it was really quite fascinating because I've been involved with ballet, both as a composer and actually um, when I was in college, I played um, percussion in an orchestra um in the university orchestra and one of the things we did we um accompanied ballet for one concert and we had rehearsals in like a gym and the dancers mm-hmm. were behind us so i had the chance to because i was in the percussion i was right between the dancers the orchestra and the conductor so i got to see how all that fits together and i also got to watch the choreographers work and i gotta say choreographers like conduct the dance mm-hmm. something like that Totally. And they not only like create the dance they're both the composer and the conductor they conduct the dance too
3: mm-hmm.
1: it was always it was a fascinating experience watching you know the, the choreographer count and the dancers move and i was always fascinated with how that you know comes out of just like the music the stimulus that mm-hmm. was happening uh, even though i was on the triangle you know i, I have a, little, I have a had a little bit of a part in it, you know, but just (laughs) being there and observing all that. But like, you know, even with uh, the stuff I talked about with Connor, you know, it it was quite fascinating to see how he would compose the dance for this piece and what he was envisioning for this piece and what direction he would take it. And, um, of course, um, even before our phone call, I looked Connor up, you know. I watched some of his dance. I watched some of his interviews and I was extremely, extremely impressed with um, how he moves, how he thinks about dance movement. And I was like, I want to see what this guy does with my work. So we called each other up on the phone and we uh, immediately hit it off. And I was like, it's yours. You can take awesome. it.
3: <laughs> oh, I love that. So
1: that was, um, that was a great introduction. And um, yeah, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome.
0: Yeah. I'm curious because you're both quite young and, um, in the early, no, really, I'm just kidding. You're, young. <laughs> you're very young. <laughs> and, um, I'm curious about how that impacts your work. Um, do you find it, do you think it's easier or harder to take risks because you are at the beginning and you're not defined by the length of your career yet?
4: You know, I think at first I put a lot, when I first started creating, I put a lot of pressure on myself and I think, you know, it was one of the experience working with Mark Morris and he created a dance at Houston Ballet. And I was watching this master of dance making, you know, make a dance. And it was hard for him. It was really difficult, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's a difficult process. And I was just like, gosh, this guy has made hundreds of, you know, dances that are, you know, iconic American dances. And it's still really difficult for him. And that really, um, really made me feel more comfortable to make dances and made me realize that every you know every dance doesn't have to be the dance you know you know your first dance doesn't have to be petite mort or you know demon variations like it doesn't have to be the masterpiece it's all part of your evolution and part of your growth so in that sense taking the pressure off of myself as being like, I'm a young choreographer that is learning my craft. I am not, right. you know, I don't claim to be a master. I don't claim to be, um, you know, that I've got the, you know, I, I understand how to make the perfect dance. No, I'm, I'm finding my way. And I think for a dancer, that's becoming a choreographer, I think that taking off that pressure is so important. You know, we constantly compare ourselves to Balanchine or Robbins or, you know, Killian these dance masters. And it's like, well, I mean, problem is some of their first dances were really, really good, but, <laughs> you know, like, but you know, it, it, to me, it's, I look at this every experience as an educational experience and part of me learning how to do it and what kind of dance maker I want to be. So in that sense, being a young dance maker. Yeah. I, I feel like that's really important to freeing up my um, taking away the fear and freeing up myself and taking off the pressure of um, that would stop me from making a dance. Cause I think a lot of dancers, that is what stops them from, you know, they censor themselves too much out of fear that they're not going to make a masterpiece.
1: Really. You know? Yeah. I agree with a lot of what Connor is saying. It parallels a lot to classical music where most of the, um, the masters are, you know, gone and, constantly being um you know compared to them you go to the youtube comments and you see some new work you go down it's, it sounds like copeland well thanks <laughs> um but you know especially when you're starting out in classical music it could be you, know, you you have a lot of people that feel the need to compare you even some of your teachers sometimes but you know um you find, you know, as you go along this journey, you find very supportive role models that encourage you to uh, be yourself, whether it be in your dance or in your music. And I've found a bunch of those role models who have um, kind of uh, seen me as I am and they can encourage me as I am, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I run the risk of um, uh, kind of whenever I go to write a new piece, worrying about whether it's going to sound like something that's being written or not. And then there, there's some times where I just completely throw that outside of the window and I just kind of write. And that's just like, you know, whatever happens happens, you know, mm-hmm. um, to kind of face that dilemma when I received my very first commission with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. I was 21 years old. They gave me 20 minutes with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra to write music for the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. One of the, most famous orchestras in the world you can argue and they gave a 21 year old 20 minutes now that that's a lot of pressure yeah um so what i did was um take the pressure off off of that you know instead of writing something that had like a generic type like symphony concerto i wrote something that meant something to me I chose to be my, I think that was the very first occasion where I chose to be myself in my music, especially in my orchestral music. So I wrote my piece, Inner City Rhapsody, um, which mm-hmm. premiered to great acclaim, uh, led to a lot of uh, connections with other orchestras, and led to a second commission with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, and soon a third. And uh, it was then, you know, at that point, I already worked with uh, Dr. Maslanka about the human element in music making. And that's when I decided to inject some of that human element in my music making. So by the time I got to uh, write, you know, a Joyce trilogy, Joyce trilogy was composed in 2019. So that was my very last year of college. And I'd been writing, I'd been working with orchestras for several years at that point. Uh, I was, uh, how old was I in 2019? 24? 25? Mm-hmm. something like that um but i had been i had matured just a little bit in musically not as a person <laughs> 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 um but um yeah at that point um i i've been seasoned to write for the orchestra and i was able to inject my personality um fully into the music yeah. and then i wrote that piece which is um uh the joyous side of my personality and for that, you know, a lot of um, contemporary compositions are, you know, atonal. You know, they can't, mm-hmm. not really audience friendly. Some of my right. some of my colleagues write like that, you know, and they, you know, it's mostly in the academia.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I never felt the need to write like that, or to impress anybody like that. I just, I've always, to be perfectly frank with it, I wrote whatever the hell I wanted to, and I still do.
2: That's so. I mean that's important, I'm sure, so I wonder too, now that this this piece of music has already been written, it's already been established, um I wonder if there was any sort of going back and forth in terms of any changes as you went through the process to adapt it to dance or is it exactly as was in 2019?
1: Well, I mean, Connor, have you made any changes
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> No, no, I do so you know there's not a commercial recording yet, so we Originally, I was listening to some live performances mm-hmm. um, for two different um, orchestras. And I do know that Quinn has, you know, it started off with just one movement. And then he later added a second and third movement to make it a joyous trilogy. And mm-hmm. I do know there's some subtle changes um, to the score over over that time period, you know, listening from one recording to the next. Um but no, we have not made any changes. No, absolutely not. I will say, though, we, we did make a, a piano reduction to the piece. Uh, we worked with our, our lead pianist, Catherine Sisco, on here, and she made a piano reduction, which is was really fun to work with her on that. And I got to collaborate with her and, you know, speaking to her and say, what part of the orchestra do am I trying to bring out? What am I choreographing to? Mm-hmm. And that was really fun and felt like I got to be involved in, co- you know, a music composition in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're just using that for rehearsal process. Um, so that we can rehearse more quickly and, and efficiently and also to help teach the dancers the music structurally, because it is quite, um, you know, at first listen, it doesn't sound that complicated, but when we go to our classic, you know, trying to count like dancers, you know, it's yeah, it's right. definitely not straight eights and it, you know, it changes, um, you know, meters all the time. And, and there's a lot of complicated different things happening in there. Um. But you don't often, at first listen, you're like, oh, this sounds, you know, it has such great rhythm and it's a really accessible piece of music. But the more time you spend with it, you're like, wow, this is a really complex, um, interesting piece of music. So that the piano reduction really helped us um, teach the dancers our dancer counts, you know, spend time and learn it in a way that we can memorize it. Uh, right. and study it. But absolutely, we have not made any changes <laughs> to, to the work. I want the work as Quinn wants it. That is right.
1: it. Right. right. The beauty of, um, you know, that piece, the, the beauty of having a piece played so many times is hearing how other conductors do it. So mm. uh, I believe the two recordings that Connor have been listening to was the original recording with myself conducting, uh, the world premiere recording from February, 2020, and then it's European premiere a year later with the Italian national radio orchestra, same tempi, different levels of orchestra. Uh, Cause you know, mm. the, the Italian radio orchestra is more professional, uh, even though their player base was significantly reduced, the performances from June, 2021. So COVID protocol. So less right. violins, three bases, you know, everybody spread out, um, Right. And as the piece began, I mean, it, it's been played so much since then. And I would send Connor these recordings. I remember I sent mm. Connor, I sent you a recording that Ken Kiesler did with the University of Michigan Orchestra, the first movement, where it yeah. was like super fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was um. like, well, can you choreograph that? <laughs>
0: uh, the ballet premieres on June 2nd and runs through runs the 12th. And I just want to hear a little bit more about what Houston audiences can expect to see. You were saying, Connor, how you you don't usually come in with like a big grand idea and kind of build it over time. So how, how has the piece shifted from that early conversation with Quinn to to what it's going to be on stage coming up?
4: Yeah. um, Well, going into this piece, I knew that I wanted to use more of a classic vocabulary. We started working um, on this piece shortly after um, we came out of, Um, you know, COVID lockdown or whatever, we started working, I guess, in October or something. And that's when things really started to feel like normal in, in, at Houston Ballet. And so there is a, you know, I want, I wanted the dancers to feel like they were back and dance to their fullest and using, you know, we're ballet dancers. So I, I really wanted to use a ballet foundation within the movement um so in that sense i would call it a a ballet and i I think there's this wonderful sense of community and joy in the dance because i do feel like i was creating in a time where it just felt so great to be back and to be Mm -hmm. dancing again um and to be with my colleagues so i think it is a joyous piece it is a bright piece it is a piece with lots of energy and um there will also be lots of color. You know, we've we've all the costumes. Every dancer is in an individual color, fourteen different colors, um, which I think will make a really wonderful palette um, on the stage to to bring the texture of this you know um, piece out. And yeah, I I don't know. We also you know have really excited to have Quinn come and work with the orchestra, which is so great that we're in such close proximity that that can be possible. I'm excited for our orchestra to work with him. That's not something that the ballet orchestra always gets to do is work with composers. Um, And also Quinn's going to conduct some shows in our first weekend, which is just going to be an an amazing experience and an experience that I don't think I've ever had as a dancer that to be conducted by the composer. So for us all Mm -hmm. to kind of be together, to have that complete experience where everyone that's involved in this creative process um, in sync and and working at the same moment, I think is
1: really going to be a special occasion. Yeah. That's going to be very exciting. June 4th and 5th. Armando has invited me to conduct the um, the shows then. So actually um, I leave for Houston in a couple of hours. Oh, wow. I'm going to be there until June 5th uh, with a couple of detours between them. But It's basically um, Armano and Connor have me in this like immersion into um, what, it's, what it takes to put on a show at Houston Ballet. So I'm going to attend like studio rehearsals and nice. I'm going to you know, rehearse with the orchestra several times and work with Armano and work with Honor. And so I get to see exactly what goes on at Houston Ballet for a couple of weeks, which is very mm-hmm. exciting for me. I've always been fascinated with what goes on goes into a ballet production and how something like that's put together. Because it's it seems like it's quite a lot and you know, two weeks. I'm I'm sure I'm certain you've been working for longer, but like um, <laughs> even just two weeks looking at that, I'm just like I'm ready to definitely immerse myself in the seat and seeing what, what happens, you know?
2: Right. I was wondering if it was going to be almost a challenge for you because my guess would be, you would really want to be seeing what's happening on stage, which of course you have to be, you know, keeping your eye on the stage as a conductor, but also you need to keep your eye in the pit. So I, I kind of wonder what that experience might be like for you kind of balancing both that you want to kind of watch over all of it. Cause it's just such a special experience.
1: And plus it's the first time I'm doing it. So I'm going right. to, I know, um, I think Ar- Armando is going to rehearse first a couple of times and I'm just going to observe how he does it because oh, he he's yeah. seasoned. Right. He's right. seasoned. And he's probably going to be like my guide and my mentor on this. And That's so, cool. um, you know, watching the seasoned ballet conductor and how they do it, you know, um, it'll, it'll help me out a lot, especially I learned a lot by observation. Mm-hmm. And so it, it'll, I'll I'll learn fairly quickly that way, as yeah. opposed to being tr- thrown in the deep end, like here, you know. So, so our that's why do doing opening night. Right. So
2: sure, and then you'll get to watch them. That sounds great.
0: Well, we so wish that we could be there to see the premiere, and we encourage all of our listeners in the Houston area to come out and see it. And we hope that this is the first of many collaborations between the two of you.
3: Yes.
4: Likewise, likewise.
2: Thank you, guys, so much.
4: Well, thanks for having us. What a pleasure.
2: And now a clip from a joyous trilogy.